Father, we bow before you this afternoon, Lord, with humble hearts. Lord, we've been richly blessed and filled this morning. We've enjoyed hearing about the things that are happening in the celestial realm with your power, O oh God, um, and the warfare that's going on. And Lord, it's time for us today to bring our, this afternoon, to bring our gaze down from the celestial and enter into where the warfare happens in our lives day by day. Father, you've given us practical messages in the afternoon, Lord, and I confess a challenge when, when it comes to doing this because so much personal opinion can enter here. But Lord, this is where the battle is fought day by day in each of our lives, right? In the neighborhoods where we live. Father, I just ask you to bless this message. Bless the feeble phrases that fall from my lips, Father, and may they enter into the hearts, ready prepared hearts, and cause them to be messages that will change lives, Father. Only you can do this work. I just pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard some groans and some moans as you entered in here. Some comments. So I believe it was justified for me to do what I was doing. Ah, still no pretense in my life. That's right. I thought I would do this one more day at least. And then we'll just kind of, I'll just feel how the, the temperature is, whether we do that again or not. But still no pretense, still no pride. I just wonder how it's going in your life the last day or so. How are you doing with surrendering position and pride? How are you doing with surrendering possessiveness? Popularity, polarity, which I don't think I ever cl uh, clarified yesterday, simply means drawing together with only those of your kind, is how I was defining that. Polarity and preference or obedience. How are you doing? These glaring red circles are here to remind you and me that if you want success, out of this week, a changed life, and to be an effective minister in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there can be no pretense. There's been a lot of testimony to that, and I've really appreciated it. I'd like to finish Pete's thought that he dropped this morning in his, in his, uh, in his closing thoughts, or this afternoon, I guess it was already, his closing thoughts. Um, I believe what he meant to say was what he shared in our, our prayer group yesterday. I so much appreciated it. He said, if you're pretending then the only person that the people around you get to know is that person you're pretending to be. And he did get that said this morning. But what he went on and said in our prayer group was, and that makes you a very lonely person, a very, very lonely person, because the people, all they know is this person you're pretending to be, and the person you really are doesn't have anybody. And you're alone. That was rich, and that blessed us tremendously in our prayer group. That's another one of Satan's tactics. And we don't want to be um, ignorant of that device. Satan wants you to feel like you're all alone. So he can divide you off, just like that little calf, that little whale calf. This topic, our title, scriptural title is, Go and Do Thou Likewise, found in Luke chapter 10, verse 37. The burden of this message is the revival of the royal law. You know, afternoon sessions are... Uh, I even had somebody tell me this. Wow, you've got the challenging one because you know what time of the day it is and, and everybody's eyes begin to droop a little bit and they get a little sleepy. And so I've, I've been thinking about what I can do to help that. And I guess I could jump and dance and get really vibrant. And maybe I will some of the time. I, that's up to the Spirit of God. But, but I'm going to try to do what I can to include you in this to help keep everybody awake and aware because it's only fair to you that you are, are allowed to enjoy this entire week and, and not be allowed to be drowsy and sleep through some of this. So... Um, I know that a lot of times when we ask for scriptures, um, we get a lot, but I think this afternoon we'll just take hands and I'll just have one individual give us a, a verse if I ask for a quotation. And don't feel bad if I say, does anybody know this verse? And you just don't, that's okay. I'm, I don't know what everybody knows. I know you're Bible scholars, so I'm confident that you'll know some of them. The Royal Law. James chapter 2. Can anybody recite the verse about the Royal Law? Verses 8 and 9. They begin like this. If ye fulfill. Don't feel bad. I, don't, I just didn't know, so I thought I'd give you that opportunity. Joe? I didn't raise my hand, but I'll give the shot. I saw the look in your eye. the royal law according to the scripture. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well. That's correct. Exactly. But if you have respect. Oh, that's 
Yes. Amen. 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 That's good. And I, and I don't feel very fair about this because I couldn't recite these verses myself. I, I'm just trying to do you the favor of keeping you involved. Okay? <coughs> the royal law. Quick introductory. We'll want to do like we're going to do every day. The, the, the reminder that the royal law of God is a hopeful calling. It's a holy calling. It's a high calling. And it's a heavenly calling. And also, after this morning's message, I had to think it's a uniting calling. This royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It is a living calling. It's an alive calling. It's not just a life calling. It's something that you're going to live and do every day. This calling is not optional. There's some coming up in the next day or two that will be a little unique and a little different than the calling of being a neighbor. But this one here, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're one of His servants, you are called to be a neighbor. You are called to, to have a neighbor heart. This subject is soundly and securely settled, like I said yesterday, on the foundation of servanthood. That's why it's so important to get past pretense and pride and find ourselves a servant of God without pretense. Surrendered to Him. Finding surrender so that we can even function in this calling of neighborhood to be a neighbor. I want to very quickly give a testimony of a good neighbor in my life. Brother Kurt reminded me of this this morning in his, in his talk and one of the illustrations he used. And uh, I think I can, this is just a brief, small way, but I think I can illustrate very well maybe even where the heart of this message is just in his life and ours and how they've impacted ours. I introduced you yesterday to five children. Ivan, Marshall, Heather, Dina, and Micah. There was a time in our life that we wondered if we were going to have any children. Now, it didn't go 8 and 10 and 12 years like it did, does for some people, and, but it was going on two and a half and three years, and, and by the nature of things, there should have been children, and it wasn't happening. And, and I don't know why. I just want to say this. Never, 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 never underestimate the power of God. Never. I don't know why we called Kurt and Janie. I didn't, at that point in my life, I mean, we knew them. They were in our church there locally. But I didn't, we didn't know them so well. I, we had no idea that Janie had a personal, and Kurt had a personal burden in ministry for childless children. We didn't know that. God knew that. Something drew us to them. Maybe they were the most approachable there in, in, among our elders. I don't know. But we called... Kurt and Janie one evening, and they gladly came and had chili soup and cookies at our house. And then we began to share with them our burden. I was In my heart, I was challenging the message of, if you ask in faith, you will receive, and all those verses that go through a man's mind when he'd like to have children, and they're not happening. God, what's the matter? You said, if you ask in my name, you'll give it. You know. So I was asking Kurt these hard questions. They listened to our hearts, and after a while, they shared with us that that was a special burden of, of Janie's, especially childless mothers, and that she would add us to Suzanne's womb to her prayer list of childless mothers. And we have five children. I give God all the glory, but that's a testimony of the power of God, of his, of the Jehovah Sabaoth, God of hosts. And that's the, that is God working through somebody willing to be a, a neighbor in this case. Somebody willing to reach out and minister to those close to them. And they blessed us that way. And I just thought I'd share that testimony so that you could see the power of God alive and at work even between some of us here this, this, this week. And I was just blessed by Kurt sharing that. It reminded me of that again. And we've been exceedingly thankful for that. Go and do thou likewise. <clears throat> I would just say publicly thank you, Brother Kurt and Sister Janie, for that. We've been humbled many times. And it's been a drawing in our lives to, to try to be a little more of a neighbor ourselves and more caring and compassionate for others. So there was a man named Jerry one time. I think you probably all met Jerry and Sam, but we're going to talk about him just a little bit. There was a man named Jerry one time. He was a wealthy man, had quite a few possessions. And he was taking a trip. He had some of his possessions he wanted to transport from one city to another city. So he got on his steed. I think it was probably a thoroughbred Arabian horse. 
He packed on that all of his wealthy belongings, his luggage, wearing his costly robes, rings on his fingers, etc., etc. And he set off from one city to the next. And Jerry was partway through his journey, maybe about halfway, about halfway there, when suddenly a band of thugs jumped out from behind the rocks. They stopped Jerry's horse. They pulled him down off the horse. They took away his costly garments. They stole all of his luggage. They took all his money. They took all the rings off of his fingers. They stripped him to almost nothing. And in the process, he was beat up and almost dead. He could no longer function on his own. There he lay beside the road. Jerry wondered, perhaps in his subconscious, what was going to happen next. He lay there lost and alone, beaten up and bruised, hurting, wondering if there was anybody that cared in this life. I don't know if he was even aware enough to notice that people were walking past him on the road on their, on their, in their vehicles and cars, or vehicles and donkeys and whatever they had. They were walking past him. I don't know if he noticed that or not. But one thing I know that he noticed was along came a man, knelt down beside him. He felt a presence beside him all of a sudden, and a gentle voice said, Friend, are you alive? And he responded somehow, somehow and, and this friend noticed he was alive, and his friend said, You know, friend, he said, My name is Sam. I don't have a lot, but I can tell you're hurting, and I want to help you. I don't have much. i got a little oil. I've got a little wine. We'll dress these wounds a little bit. All I have is a little donkey here, but I'll put you on my donkey, and I'll take you up here, and the first place we can find some help, we'll get some help. So Sam put Jerry on his, on his donkey, and they went to the inn a few miles up the road, and Sam ministered to Jerry. Now, I have no idea if the Samaritan's name was Sam or if the guy from Jerusalem's name was Jerry or not. But I use Sam and Jerry because the people that we meet in life are Sam's and Jerry's. They're not a certain man, and they're, not a, and they're not the Samaritan man. They have names like Sam and Jerry, just to bring it a little bit closer home. Good Samaritan sounds like somebody far off, and, and the certain man from Jerusalem sounds like a distant story. But Sam and Jerry live right next door to you, and they live right next door to me. They're sitting right beside you today, in fact. That's Sam and Jerry. Now... A little bit more about Sam and Jerry. Jerry had no option. I want you to think about the, the I want you to think more about more about more than just Sam and Jerry, but Jerry didn't have any option about where he was born, what his circumstances in life were. Jerry couldn't help it. The education that he had, the perception he had in life even, or the wealth that he had amassed, that was just some of the circumstances that came into his life. He couldn't really help it. It wasn't really in his plan. I know it wasn't in his plan to have a set of thieves jump out from behind a rock and beat him all to pieces. It wasn't in Jerry's schedule at all. Couldn't help it. It wasn't in his plan. The same thing with the, with the Good Samaritan, with Sam. Sam couldn't, couldn't change his situation in life either. The circumstances, the, the description is exactly the same. He didn't have any choice about his place of birth. He couldn't help it. He was born in Samaria. He couldn't change his life experiences either. I'm pretty sure it wasn't on his schedule. To stop that day and help a beat-up man wasn't on his mind even, I doubt. Pretty sure he wasn't a qualified doctor or nurse. He was just Sam from Samaria. Wasn't on his schedule. But Sam took the time out of his day to help somebody who couldn't help it that he was beat up. Somebody who couldn't help himself. That's, that's the situation of every one of us. You can't help it where you were born. You can't help it who you are. You can't help it how you've become how you've become. You are who you are today, and we have this day forward to go. And the people you meet and the people sitting right beside you, they can't help it either. They were born where they're born. They have the circumstances that they have, and they have needs, many of them. We all do. And they can't even help that always. But we are called to, to be Sam today. I want to quickly go through this little point I told you I was going to go through every day. I almost forgot. Uh, I want to remind us each day, I am a servant of God. The same applies to neighborhood. I am a servant of God. I am allowing Him to bless others through me. I need to focus on people rather than on performance. I need to make others feel valuable. There must be no partiality in my heart. The little common recipe that's across the bottom of my little summary here says a common recipe for success in all kingdom life callings. And this isn't worded right, I know, but it's this. It's a victory over self, all caps, not to be gained by personal determination or energy, but by total surrender, all caps, to the will and purpose of God. Now, I had a brother question me about a little bit about that, and I even challenged my own mind here just a little bit. Not to be gained by personal determination or energy. 
By that, I don't mean there's no energy to expend or no effort to put into it. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is a little bit like uh, Brother Pete said yesterday in one of his closings when he said about the woman who was caught in adultery and many of us have tried to go and sin no more outside of the power of God. Just go and sin no more. That's what I mean. What I mean is in our own energy, without help from the Spirit of God, without His energy, we can't do it. But it's by total surrender to the will and purpose of God. So if we want to be successful, let's surrender to Him. A few, a few scripture verses here as we start out. God was interested in the people close by you and me and by people who, people who were close by each other years and years ago. It started way back in the beginning. In fact, I, I suppose I was aware of this, but I wasn't really aware of when the royal law was first introduced. That was God's heart from the very beginning, of course. But the first verse that we find that includes the royal law is way back in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 18 says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Clear back in Leviticus with the children of Israel, he said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Romans 13, verses 9 and 10. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Can anybody tell me what the entire royal law is? In Jesus' own words, the royal law is more than thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's one before that. Evelyn. On this hang all the law and the prophets. Very good. Thank you. That's the royal law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The royal law. Now, I wanted to say something about reviving the royal law. The royal law has never died. The royal law has lived on. The royal law is not getting faint. The royal law is not asleep or all the things that we say that we're trying to revive. What I want to revive is revive our hearts in the royal law, within the work of the royal law. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. James 10, 8 and 9 that we had quoted a little bit ago by Brother Joe. If ye fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture... Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. The royal law. What makes the law a royal law? Amen. Amen. comes from royalty, doesn't it? It comes from somebody who's in charge. It comes from somebody who's the big boss man, if you please. Allow me the phrase. It's the one who has everything under his control, basically, and he is the one who sets the law, and it makes it a royal law. It's an, it's an edict. That cannot be changed unless the royal king changes his mind. And our king's not going to change his mind about this royal law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. God is love. Without him there is no love. And that's what he wants for us today as well. The royal law. So kingdom neighborhood. Neighborhood is the neighborhood is was the subject I was given for today. I'm calling it kingdom neighborhood, and I'm calling for kingdom neighbor hearts. Neighbor hearts. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Can anybody tell me, in Ephesians chapter 5, there's a, a description of how people love themselves. It's referring to husbands and wives, typically. Can you recite that verse? Or part of it, at least. Ephesians, I'm sorry. Yes, Ephesians 5. Thank you, brother. Amen. That's good. 
That's right. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. He's speaking of husbands and wives, and that's good. But he tells us in his royal law that goes far beyond husbands and wives, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, and no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. Gets pretty sobering here as we think about the direct command. And one of the brothers said this morning, the thought's not going to return to me. I'm sorry. Well, I'll just say it this way. God really means what he says. However radical it seems, that's what he means. When he says it, he means it. We're going to find out how sobering that is here in just a minute. Luke chapter 10. Let's go ahead and read these verses just to, to give us a setting of where we're going here. Luke chapter 10, and we'll start in the 25th verse. <clears throat> and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. This do, and thou shalt live. But the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Just a little self-defense there. A little defensive, I, I believe, in his voice. Who is my neighbor? Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the, the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. That's the burden this morning, this afternoon, for all of you young people and for all of us that are here today. Go and do thou likewise. Not too many of us are going to have situations like Sam and Jerry, but... Go and do thou likewise. Don't want to spend too much time here on this priest and Levite, but I do want to spend a little time with them. There's a reason for that. It's a very, very important point I want to get out of the priest and Levite. Let's turn to James chapter 2. If you don't think the subject of neighborhood is important, you're about to find out differently. This is a very important point. Very, very important calling. It's a high calling. It's a heavenly calling. It's a holy calling. And a neighborhood is a helpful calling. We're just going to go ahead and read James chapter 2, 1 through 12. We'll take the time to do that. My brethren... Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou over there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Anybody here ever despised the poor? No pretense now. Have you ever despised the poor? Gets pretty close home. These are the kinds of things we're trying to surrender this week. These are the the kinds of things we're trying to dig out of our hearts. Pretense and pride. But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not do not they blame that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law, 
According to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But listen to this verse. But. Anytime there's a but, you want to sit up and take notice. But. If ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin. That's not all. And are convinced of the law as transgressors. That convinced should mean convicted of the law as transgressors. You're guilty if you have respect to persons. Young people, I told a brother this earlier today, that these messages come from a heart that's learning. I don't stand here before you as one who has never had any trouble with respect of persons or who doesn't yet deal with it today. But this is the Word of God. This isn't Andy talking. If ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one little point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be, called, shall be judged by the law of liberty. If ye have respect of persons, to persons ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law. This isn't just any law. This isn't law that the police station uptown made, or the judicial system in your county or your land made. This is the royal law. All purple. It's written by God. It's the law of love. I will read that verse one more time. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Very, very important verse for us to remember. When we're tempted to be like Mr. Priest or Mr. Levite and walk on past because uh, they're dirty or they don't smell good or their skin's not the right color. Or they're just, I just don't have time. Or, wow, if it was just tomorrow. Or I'm, I don't think I'm going to have the right words. I, I, I just don't have enough wisdom. There's promises for all that. We won't go into those. If you do that, you commit sin. I didn't write those words. God did. For some reason, we think that and we're just certain in ourselves that, that if, if Jesus were to enter our scope of vision, that he would be a handsome or a beautiful or whatever, whatever descriptions you use, an attractive person who's, who's clean and well put together and, and would have a beautiful voice and lots of abilities, and that would be Jesus, and we would just go right up to him, and, and we would sit down beside him, and, and we would bless him, and he would bless us. And, and That's not the description we have of Jesus. We've talked about it several times already, but that's not what Isaiah tells us Jesus is going to look like. When we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. No comeliness, His form. He might come in the form of somebody that's dirty. He might come in the form of somebody that doesn't smell good. He might come in the form of somebody who can't talk right. He might come in the form of somebody who lands in your life right in the middle of a busy day. When you flat don't have time or you don't think you do, whose time is it? It's about our own. Partiality. No partiality. Partiality is a transgression of the law and we will be found guilty. We want to move on to Jesus' usage of the neighbor here in Luke. Um, typically, as we, as we grow and we learn, we think about neighborhood as being the community in which we live or, or the area around us. And that's right and that's good, but... Our, our, our titles this week are different than that. Our titles, the subjects we've been given, are to be about the state of being. We're going we're to talk about some different neighborhoods or some different areas we might live or be involved in, but our call to us today, to you, is to be the, to the state of being a neighbor. Not so worried about who your neighborhood is. We're going to find out that goes with you everywhere you go. You can't, you can't get away from your neighborhood from your community, from the people around you, the people who's close to you. But we're called today to be in the state of a neighbor, in the condition of being a neighbor. It's a calling of being something. Jesus said that here in, in Luke 10. We'll see that when he said, um, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves. He didn't say who was in the right neighborhood or, 
or whose neighborhood was this thief? did this thief land in? Who should have been taking care of him? He said, who was neighbor to him? We want to talk about being a neighbor largely today, this afternoon. Basically, for just a quick definition, in the mind of Christ, the question might more aptly be put, who within the scope of my reach or vision at any given time am I not the neighbor to? Basically, I would say it's this. I am to be the neighbor to anyone, to a fellow being, to a fellow being, a human, fellow human, the one nearby, whoever that is, and more especially the one nearby who has a need without any partiality. We're called to be a neighbor to these individuals. Everyone we come in contact with, I don't, know, I don't care who they are, I don't care how big they are, how small they are, or what country they're from, or what language they speak, everyone has needs. Everyone. Everyone you meet has a need. Some of these folks in life may need clothes. Some of them might need money. Some of them might need houses. Some of them might need food. There's those kinds of needs. There's a few like that. There's a lot out there like that, really. But I can guarantee you that everyone, all, and all encompasses everybody, needs hope. Everybody needs love. And everybody, all, needs Jesus Christ. Anybody who is near at hand is your neighbor. I'm, I was thankful that our brother turned to Luke again this morning in the... well. He actually went to Isaiah, I guess. He started out in Luke, and I'm like him. I like Isaiah better, too. But since he went to Isaiah, let's go to Luke again, Luke 4. Um, for the perfect example of a neighbor, Jesus said, and, and I think about the words of Jesus when he talks about himself, and, I, and, and you can't lay down the fact that Jesus said, wherever I go, I want you to follow me. Follow me. Verse 18 in chapter 4 of St. Luke, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. I had thought maybe we would expound on that verse just a little bit, but I think we'll just leave that as it is. You can break that down into about seven different areas that Jesus was ministering, different ways He ministered, and you'll get a great blessing out of that. And He says, Go and do thou likewise. That's the words of Jesus. The one near at hand. I'm going to say that added to the burden of reviving the royal law is this. And that is the burden to be a minister of hope, love, and of Jesus Christ to whoever's near at hand. Make that a practice. Make that a part of who we are. Make that the hood that we wear, the hood of a neighbor. Love, hope, love, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The person you're sitting beside today is your neighbor. The person you run into next week is going to be your neighbor. We're going to find that here really shortly. Very seldom will our call be as dramatic as Sam's was, that we find a beat-up person that's all bruised and battered and just had all of his wealth robbed, and it may not be that clear. It may not be that glamorous. It may not be that exciting. It might be a situation where somebody just needs a few simple words of encouragement. may not even get any attention for it. What if nobody notices? I don't think Sam had in mind for anybody to notice. I don't know that he I don't know that he had any idea he would be written in billions of Bibles a couple thousand years later. I'll emphasize again like I did yesterday, there's one page you want your name written on. Just one. I guess it was Sunday. I'm getting my days all mixed up. Just one page you want your name written on. It's a page white and fair. If it never hits the newspapers, if it never hits the history books. That's fabulous. That's wonderful. As long as it's on the name on the page, white and fair, when the books are opened and the names are called. Okay. So now, we know what a neighbor is supposed to be. That was fairly quick and fairly brief, but a neighbor is going to be, in, in the way we're using it today, a minister of hope, love, and Jesus Christ to whoever's near at hand. You'll notice up here that I've come up with six places that we'll find ourselves in, and there's many, many more, but maybe this will filter down into covering most of the areas. We're going to find ourselves in the workplace, the marketplace, the home place, the traveling place, I call it, the distant place, and the judgment place for a little while here. This is the hard part. This is where we get away from generalities a little bit. 
And we take that warfare, the dark and the light, the evil and the good, and we put shoes on it, some would say. We go to places where we can't live here 52 weeks out of the year, unfortunately. It would be a rich blessing. But maybe it wouldn't be as much of a blessing if we lived here 52 weeks out of the year. I don't know. But um, we can't do that. We can't stand here and listen to Brother Kurt talk about the awesomeness and the wonderful names of God all of our life. We can't, our life, we can't fulfill our life with that. We can't stand here and just be, be awe-inspired by the mighty battle that's going off in the, uh, on in the celestial kingdom and, and, being, and, and just impressed with the love and might of God and Jesus Christ and angry at, at, the, at the powers of darkness. We, we can't spend all of our time sitting under those, those words. And so we've got to go to these places. And I'll just admit, it's, it's a little hard, and I'll admit that opinions enter in when you go to places like this. But I'll say like I did yesterday, that if you differ, that's fine, but my heart is to set a high standard. If you disagree with particulars, at least get the message that you can't shoot too high for God. It'll never happen. The workplace. How many of you, young people, students especially, hold a job as an employee? Are any of you employers? The boss. There's a couple of you here that way. Okay, this message is for you. This message is for anybody who's an employer or an employee. We'll find ourselves in a workplace at some time. Go and do that likewise. I'm going to turn to just a few verses. I want to emphasize one then. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what they all are, but we're only going to turn to maybe three of them. Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. We'll turn to that one. And then there's Colossians chapter 3, and you can reference these later as you're thinking about the workplace and what God's will is for us there. Ephesians 6. Oops. Servants, he says in verse 5, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and singleness of, heart, of your heart as unto Christ. As unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. doesn't matter if it's your employer or your employee or who it is. There's no respect of persons with God. We're called to be a neighbor. Uh, Colossians 3, 22 and 24. Write that one down. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is the next one I want to turn to. And this one is my favorite, actually. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor and that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved. I'm sorry, I got one ahead of myself. I like this one too. Because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit, these things teach and exhort. Notice here that he says there's a potential that the name of God can, and His doctrine can be blasphemed in the workplace by how we operate and how we function there in the workplace. He's referring to believing masters. And I, I personally believe that was at a time when, as a slave, if you were born again, you didn't necessarily think that if your master was a Christian, he had to just let you go, but that you were to give him honor and, and you were to consider him a brother and still do him good service. doesn't really matter about that, I guess. Titus, chapter 2. Verses 9 through 11. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Did you get that? There's a word in there that I like. I love. I absolutely, I, I just, I'm thrilled at this word. It says this. It says that they may adorn the doctrine of God. Our Savior. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Do you know what adorn means? Adorn means to make beautiful. 
the doctrine of God, our Savior. More than that, it says, to set it off to an advantage. To set off the doctrine of God, our Savior. Give it an advantage in the lives of your employer or your employee. Don't do it a disadvantage. It's so easy to do, and there's more words about that here. It's also to display the excellence of, is another definition for adorn. To adorn the gospel of God, our Savior, in all things. This is in the workplace. Workplace can be pretty mundane sometimes, and it can get pretty common, and it can get pretty home-like, to where we maybe let down our guards, our Christian guard. Maybe that's not even the right way of saying it, because when Jesus is in us and that's who we are, it's not about having a guard anymore. It's just about being full of Him and letting Him come out of us and that being who we are. However, I think we understand the figures of speech that we use. You are to be a neighbor to your boss, to your employer and your employee. You're to minister hope and love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more than that, we're to adorn it and make it beautiful and make it excellent. Just a few things. We're not going to have time to spend very much on each of these places, and that's okay. Maybe we'll just get the point out of each one. He says here, he says, not purloining. I believe that's the same as stealing. Is that right, Brother Kurt? Stealing time, perhaps. Not purloining. How about the time cards, young men, young ladies? Not every place has a clock where you just stick a card in and it goes ka-chunk and there's no mistake in it. Some places you write down, how many hours? How can you ever teach your employer, if he's an unbeliever, about the gospel of Jesus Christ if you're untruthful with your time? Fortunately, I have no idea about your lives, and so I can't single anybody out and and give you the eyeball. I have no clue. So I say this with all uh, clearness of conscience. Showing all good fidelity. So you've clocked in. Now what? Maybe you work at a computer. That's a big one today. I hear bosses talking about guys wasting time at the computer with all the Internet garbage and stuff that they can waste time on. Maybe it's just simply chatting too much. These are things I know what I'm talking about. I've been there, done that. I know how I feel when I'm all done, when I have to go do business with God. I've, I've had to do some apologizing. I've had to do some repenting. Fidelity, sticking with it, being a good servant, one that puts in not just, the, not just the time, but puts in effort in his time. You can't really teach anybody about the zealousness of Jesus Christ and about his gospel if, if you're lazy and just don't get the work done. I guess we'll just leave that. We're, we're going to completely run out of time, and my subject's not worthy of an extra half hour of your time. So I think you've got the point. You understand the workplace and kind of what happens there with the potential, and you understand that those that you come in contact with at your work are your neighbor. And we're to minister the gospel of hope, love, and Jesus Christ. We're to adorn that and make it beautiful. I love that word, adorn. I guess I could say just a couple more things. What if your boss says to do something you don't want to do? What if something goes wrong or something breaks? There was valuable. What if you're accused of something you didn't do? I could go on and on. These are all real things that have happened in our life, and I probably have in yours as well. Adorn the gospel of God and Christ our Savior. The next place is the marketplace. The marketplace refers to the place where we use our money. That's a lot of different places. And we're not going to go very many places here specifically, but that's a lot of different places. The place we use our money. How would you minister love, hope, and Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus, in the places where we use money? I will just say it like this. I have three points that I thought of. When people are looking on, and the way that we can, the way we can use the marketplace, or the way we use our money, and how it affects our testimony is, is by my attraction to it, by my attitude while using it, and by my appetites that I fill with it in the marketplace. My attraction to it. It affects the means and methods by which I will use to gain more of it. How consumed I am with amassing more of it. Or how consumed I am with protecting it. And how, perhaps how freely I will share it 
my attitude towards my money. We could go to the verses about sharing. We might go to the verses about money here after a bit. But my attraction to it affects how consumed I am with amassing more and, and protecting what I have and how free I am to share it. My attitude while using it. Every, uh, it uh, my attitude about my, my money in the marketplace affects how I bargain and dicker with my money, perhaps. There's a man that calls the store there where I work. His name's Harold T. There's no way any of you are ever going to run into Harold T. I don't think, so I feel okay with using his name. Hello, this is Harold T. And my heart sinks into my stomach. Because Harold T. has rarely ever bought anything from droplet irrigation. But Harold T. comes in there anyway, and he walks up and down the aisles, and he looks at what we have, or he calls, either one, and he looks at it, and there's either always something wrong with the quality of it. More often than that, it's a scoffing at the price tag. Now, the next, and the next irrigation store is 20 minutes north of us, and so it's a little out of the way. And we don't necessarily find it very handy to walk in there in our droplet irrigation garb, and you can't hide your faces. In the, in the, in the irrigation culture in, in Treasure Valley, everybody knows who each other are. So we can't exactly walk into AgriLine's irrigation and, and just check out exactly what all their handline elbows are, what, what they're selling them for, and, and the valve opener elbows and their wheel lines and so forth. We, we can't do that. So we, take our, we work with what we have to work with, and, and we learn. This gentleman comes in here, and, and invariably, he'll scoff and shake his head and walk out the door laughing. When Harold T. calls, his attitude about his money just makes my heart just fall right into my stomach. I don't know who you do business with often or frequently, but I wonder, when, you, when your voice is on the other end of the phone or when you walk in the door of, of their business place, their marketplace, I wonder what happens to their heart. I have no, I have no suspicions. I have all confidence that, that you... All of you are, are blessing others with your money and that you're not keeping your fingers tight around it. But the way we use our money and our attitude toward it, toward it affects other people's opinion of the gospel of Christ that we're trying to, that, that we're trying to profess so loudly. My appetites, the things that I, that I, my appetites that I fulfill with it, the kinds of things that I will purchase with it. What about vehicles, boys? Young men, you're not just boys. You're men. Soldiers, what about your vehicles? How many of you in your life, how many of you in your life, and maybe yet today, I'm not, I guess I won't ask for a hand on this one. I'll let you have your privacy. I think it would be pretty cool to own at least a 2010 model Extended cab, four-wheel drive vehicle with no scratches on it, all shiny and polished. Examine your hearts. I trust that you're new creatures in Christ and that doesn't phase you one bit. But it does a lot of people. It does a lot of people to the detriment of their financial condition and their testimony and on and on and on. How many people in this world, there's no way they could ever afford a vehicle that's that shiny. I don't care if it was a 2003. If it looked that nice, they couldn't buy it. There's no way. Jesus was made in the likeness of men. What about vehicles, boys? Young men? Sorry about the term boys. It's a slip of the head, not of the heart. I'm going to share what we do. I have bought one vehicle, and this is not boasting at all. Much of this happened by default before we even set a parameter. I have bought one vehicle that cost more than $10,000. That was the truck that I have that's currently... It is currently... Uh, 13 years old, I've owned it for 11, almost 11. I paid $12,000 for that truck. I'm not proud of that fact. It's been a good truck. I don't, I don't feel like it was a mistake particularly because of that. But I've decided since that time that I will not spend more than $10,000 on a vehicle. Maybe that's too high. I'm not suggesting where you need to set the level. I'm not suggesting that at all. Um, to buy a family vehicle that's dependable to go from here to Ohio... You know, I don't want to start making excuses. My point is, set a parameter and set it radical. 
You might wonder, looking back at some point, why in the world did I, what, what, did I do that? Maybe you want to set a parameter that I just can't handle it. I need to buy a vehicle that has rest around, rust around the fenders. I don't know. Whatever it's got to be so that that thing's not an idol. So that people looking on don't think, man, that guy. Okay, so I, I, I enjoy these signs that you put on your vehicles, okay? The ones about the testify of Jesus Christ and of His kingdom. But what's it look like when it's on a late model SUV that's all shiny and polished and there's chrome all over it and it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of God. It won't work, brothers and sisters. It ain't going to happen. What about pleasure? We've got excess money among our youth anymore. What about pleasure? I'll just ask that question. Girls, it's your turn. Ladies, tell you what. Sisters, this isn't easy for me, I'll tell you. I've never been a sister. I, I had a couple of them. And you're all my sisters. I'm putting this thing off. What about apparel? The clothes you buy. Some clothes cost a lot of money. Some clothes might not cost a lot of money, but they look like they do. Jesus made himself in the likeness of men. Made himself in the likeness of the people he was trying to reach. I don't mean you have to go out and get dirty. I don't mean you have to necessarily have rips and tears. I'm not suggesting that. But think about what you look like and the, the things you're buying when you walk out of the store, the things that are in your hands. And the person who doesn't have wherewith to buy those things is looking on. If you have extra money and you can afford it, praise God. But let's set a standard that no matter where I'm at and no matter what I buy with my money, when I walk out of the store, there's nobody looking on saying, Wow, I wish I could afford that. But that funny covering, I wonder what that is. And then they look at your, the things you're walking out of the store with. What about your homes? Now, you're, now most of you aren't um, housewives or, or keepers of, of a home yet. But when you visualize your home, I'm starting today because someday you may have a home that you're, that you're trying to keep. And if you set some parameters today in your life, Maybe it'll be helpful for that, that day. Maybe when your husband has his shiny truck sitting out in the, in the, in the driveway, you can, you can sanctify him by your good works in your home. I have a mother who has carpet in her dining room about like this. And I'm 35 years old, and I never remember any carpet in that dining room except that it was blue instead of brown, but it looks about like this right here. And I'm thankful for that. It stays clean. Of course, um, if you knew my mother, you would understand that. There's never any dirt on that carpet, but that carpet's old, but it doesn't have holes in it. And I know she would like to change it, and maybe she will sometime soon. I don't know, but... So my question to you is, when you think about your home and how you're going to decorate it, and the kinds of things you might walk out of the stores with to put in your home, and more than that, when you think about bringing people into your home that you want to minister to, how are they going to feel? Is it okay just to have old carpet on the floor? Is it okay to have furniture that you bought at the second-hand store that maybe has a little stain on it? Is it okay not to have a pile of knickknacks over in the corner that costs $150 for nothing more than to please the lust of the eye? Sisters, I'm sorry if I'm being hard on you, but I want to call you higher! There's souls to save in this battle for King Emmanuel. And we're not going to save it by, by, by spending our money on ourselves and putting on a wealthy appearance. It's not going to happen. I bless God if you have excess money. But let me tell you about John Wesley. I think you've all heard the story, so I'll go very, very brief. John Wesley, he, he went from making a little to a lot. But throughout his entire life, he set his, his allowance at the same dollar figure, and all the extra went bye-bye. Blessing other people. If you've been blessed with a large income, praise the Lord. Set the parameter for your life, the standard for your life. Set it high, almost out of reach if you have to, to discipline your heart. Think about who you're trying to reach. The marketplace. Those near at hand are affected who are watching. Those near at hand who have not, who need love, hope, love, and Jesus Christ. You're not going to reach them by, by being above them. I have got to move on. There's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. talks about the hurtful lusts and those that have erred from the faith and all the damage that can come when we heap to ourselves these wealth and riches. 
Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 24. You all know about that. It talks about the light of the body and so forth. And it kind of jerks us, I believe, a little bit out of context because I'm not sure he was really trying to emphasize God and money there. But it makes a good point and it's a true, it's a true saying. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't do it. Money makes a good servant, but a horrible master. There's a paraphrase of a verse of Job that I skipped over earlier, but it's like this. Oh, that I had enough. And it's completely paraphrased, so you probably won't be able to think, figure out where it is. Oh, that I had enough love for those looking on to deny myself the extravagances of life in order to bless others, in order to reach the unapproachable. Now, neighbor in the marketplace, hope, love, and the gospel. Home place. All here have a home. How many of you still live at home? Almost all of you. Most of you. How many of you are the oldest in your home? I had a little six-year-old telling me yesterday afternoon, I believe it was yesterday afternoon, yeah, last night after, after last night's service, he was, he was telling me the impact he had as the oldest boy about when he did good things, his younger siblings did good things, and when he did bad things, his younger siblings did bad things. Bless God for that teaching, you young father. That's exactly right. Did you ever consider your brothers and sisters as neighbors who need hope? Love and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way you act and the way you respond and the way you react gives them a message. You're telling them you're Christians. How are we blessing them? More than that, we have next-door neighbors. How well do you know your next-door neighbors? We have three of them. What about the one next to that neighbor over there? Then the number gets larger. Do those neighbors know about love, about hope, do they know Jesus Christ? Do they know about Jesus Christ? You can't force them to know Him. Do they know about Him? I was going to share some stories about Clayton's and Jim's and, and Brent's there next to us. They're, they're ashamed to me. And so it was not a necessarily an uplifting story. And so, fortunately, I don't have time to share that. So, um, But I'll just tell you this. I, I do have to share one of them. Um, right across the road from us, Clayton Denise. Come home from work. And we've been friendly with them. We visited back and forth and chased our hogs when they got out together and all this. But, but uh, come home from church one Sunday at noon, about twelve, quarter after 12 or so. We pulled in the driveway there. And, and uh, just as we pulled in, Denise and, and the other older, elderly, neighbor, elderly neighbor come running out to the road, calling our names, crying for us. So I slammed the van into park, jumped out. Suzanne and I jumped out of the van, told the children to stay put, and we run across the road. And they were crying for help. And here Clayton had collapsed in the shop, face down in the shop. And these folks are all elderly and, and very old and unable to move him. And they just wanted me to pull Clayton out and turn him over and do something. So that's what I did. I run up there and I grabbed Clayton under his shoulders, the closest I'd ever got to the man. I'd never had my arm around him before. Pulled him out turned him over. It was too late. Too late! I'd never told him about Jesus. We just kind of hoped that the testimony of our life would take care of that, you know, and maybe they would ask. We're really nice neighbors. They'll tell us we are. Don't let it be too late for you. Clayton's gone. Travel place. I'm not going to spend any time with this one. We can go back to Jerry and Sam. We all know what it's like to get on an airplane. I'll just tell you about the last time I got on an airplane and I flew back to Indiana. I was appalled at how hard it was to talk to anybody in that airplane because every, the moment you sat down, they jammed these things in their ears and they started stroking these shiny, shiny screens. That was it. How you doing? Good, dude. <laughs> One guy sitting inside his little head was going like this, and I could even hear the music. But Larry talked about cranking up the music in his truck. I can't imagine having that stuck in your ear. I couldn't get through to him. And, and maybe, maybe, that's a, maybe that is a, uh, uh, an admonition to me to try a little harder. Take that as a challenge. Distant place. Some of you have found yourselves on foreign soil before, and some of you will, I believe. No, no doubt others will call, and that uh, will be called, and that's good. Um, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Does anybody care to recite that for me? Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Begins like this. Go ye therefore. all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Amen. And ambassadors, as ambassadors, as as ambassadors for Christ, we will, and I emphasize, we will, we will be called to spread out over the world. We are to take the gospel with us wherever we go. The gospel is to be spreading. 
It's to be shared. It's not to be kept to ourselves. I do not believe... This might seem a little dogmatic to some of you. I do not believe that in the heart and mind of God, that it is the heart and mind of God for people bearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all pile up in one place, all protecting, all, only protecting and preserving themselves. I don't believe that's the way it's supposed to be. And I believe this, that if you find yourself in a stagnant situation, bless where you can, but I believe that it would be good that if you would, call, would feel the call to move out of that and go places with the gospel. If, it's, if, if you're just in a stagnant situation where there's just too much, feel a call, go. Bless you in it. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now for the challenge. This is the hard one on this one. I have a challenge for you. Jesus implied in, that, implied in that verse that it began in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. I don't want to take that completely out of context or misread that verse. But this is my challenge. If my neighbors at home, the one close by, don't know about Jesus, I would wonder about the impact of my neighboring in distant lands. That's a... That's an admonition to myself. I would wonder about that. You take your neighborhood with you. You are the neighbor you are. If your neighbor beside you doesn't know about Jesus, now for a, for a little while it might be exciting in that foreign land, and, and you you know, but if the neighbor beside you doesn't know about Jesus, you have no business going on into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Take that as just a little um, encouragement to go home and get to know your neighbors just a little bit better. Judgment place. One more place here. We'll go through it fairly quickly. Judgment place, Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, verse 18, And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Ye shall be brought. And I believe he's saying that if you follow me like you should, if you are fastened to the rock like you should be, if you're bearing the cross daily like you should be, you shall be called, shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. I want that last line to ring in your ears that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, and now find yourself in the judgment place, just put yourself in the shoes of, of Ken Miller for just a tiny bit here, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, even though you've done what's right and good and holy and just and pure, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Ashamed equals affected. That means they were affected by your good manner of living by your good testimony of Jesus Christ. They're ashamed because they're affected by it. There's a verse in Timothy that says, it says the same thing, basically. That they which are of the contrary part may have no evil thing to say of you or to speak of you, something like that. Ashamed equals affected. That means that there's going to be a testimony of purity, of holiness, of genuineness, of consistency, that those in judgment those governors, those lawyers, those police officers, and whoever they are, when you find yourself standing before them, they'll, have, they'll be ashamed. They'll be affected. One more. What, what will your answer be if you're called to jury duty? And I'm not going to put words in your mouth. We're going to take our seat very shortly. But I want you to think about that. You'll have a brief moment there that day in the courtroom. I would encourage you to go to the courtroom rather than just writing a letter, perhaps. Or if you need to write a letter, write it on your own. Don't take the form letter that your church maybe offers. You can maybe look at that and get some encouragement from it, but write from your heart your testimony of Jesus Christ and why you simply cannot do that, why you can't enter and engage in that. You need to do that. It's too easy to say, well, uh, um, my church just doesn't do that. Um, I've been told that we don't. I, I don't really know. I, I, you know. I know that none of you would do that, but I would encourage you to think about that and be ready. In Idaho, it's, the numbers are pretty small. We don't have a very big percentage, so the chances are pretty great that that we'll have to do that. 
you may, I said this yesterday, but you may be very likely be one of the generation who is called to be another Ken Miller. I don't think that his is the last situation we'll hear of, of somebody who stands for the truth and suffers for it. And I don't think that his light sentence, whatever it may actually, whatever he may actually end up serving till it's all done, will be the lightest sentence that will ever be sentenced. Get to know God. Get to know Jesus Christ. You're doing that, and I, I bless God for that. Remember, wherever you are, practice being a neighbor today, wherever you find yourself, because you may find yourself in a situation where you want desperately to convert that jailer or that judge. You need to practice being a neighbor today. We have an opportunity. Let's use it. Jesus is the best example of a neighbor that ever lived. I'll just read this last little bit off to you. His burden, in whatever setting, whether in the house of a sinner, at the funeral of a stranger, at the tomb of a friend, having his feet washed with tears or being nailed to a cross, was to minister hope, love, and the gospel. And Jesus says, Go and do thou likewise. May the Lord bless you in this ministry of neighborhood.